Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, how are you doing today? <laughs> this is a trick and I'm not playing. <laughs> Just answer the question, Jack. How are you doing I, today? It's a pandemic, Jennifer. Nobody's good. I teach on a laptop. My kid is upstairs sitting in front of a computer for like hour three in a row. But I guess in spite of all that, we're doing okay. So how would you rank this day compared to other days? Oh, I see where we're going with this. <laughs> this is a bottom-of-the-barrel, low-tier day. This is not an elite, this is not an Ivy League day. Uh, yeah, I see where you're going. Well, the irony is that I'm already predicting that this is going to end up being one of our highest-ranking episodes. <laughs> It could be. It could be. I feel like, you know, anytime we take on uh, one of these sacred cows, uh, our, our listeners really react well. And there is no cow more sacred in this country uh, than the ratings and rankings uh, that are done to our K-12 schools, but particularly to our colleges and universities. Uh, we, we really line up to buy U.S. News and World Reporter. Actually, we don't, since it's no longer a magazine. Uh, we just, you know, go to their website. Well, before we meet our guest, just a little context on what inspired this episode. That would be a recent thread of outrage on Twitter, courtesy of my co-host. Any idea what I'm referring to, Jack? I think that what you're referencing, Jennifer, is the annual release of the Boston Magazine Best of Greater Boston. Uh, I think they only do high schools uh, on this list. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they worked their way down to pre-K eventually. There's just so much wrong uh, with what they're doing, you know, starting with simply the premise, right? The premise that it is a useful contribution to rank schools against each other, um, as if there are clear differences, as if um, there are measurable differences between, you know, number one and number two, or even number two and number 100 there. Um, you know, there may be statistical differences according to whatever their model is, but those statistical differences may not actually be observable in reality or felt differences. Uh, so from that, right, problems with the premise all the way down to the methodology, uh, which would be that the components of these algorithms are essentially garbage in terms of validity, right? So the measurement validity of these instruments is basically nil because they're not measuring what they purport to measure. Now, if they said, we are going to try to find the most privileged kids in greater Boston, um, and here's how we're going to do it, right? We're going to start with income, and then we're going to include things like, you know, their uh, standardized test scores in math and English, which we know correlate pretty strongly with a number of variables they may not be able to get data for in terms of student demography. Um, then it would have higher validity as an algorithm, right? As a rankings methodology. But I have all sorts of problems, and my hope was that we could begin to unpack these in a more systematic way so that every time a newspaper or magazine or website does this, we can just point people to this episode of the podcast. 
which brings us to our very special guest for this episode. He's someone who has long intrigued me. His name is Akio Bello, and he's the Senior Director of Advocacy and Advancement at Fairtest. He's also one of my favorite Twitter personalities, offering lively commentary on education policy and politics. And after Jack tweeted his outrage commentary on the latest Massachusetts high school rankings, Akio weighed in with some insights of his own. I have probably several Twitter threads on the ridiculousness of rankings. I usually focus on the higher ed rankings and the college rankings, but you can take your pick. They're essentially the same thing. So many of the rankings are let's re- let's measure by the same means they use to select students. They're, like Many of these institutions select students based on scores. And I think one of the things that started the recent Twitter thread was specialized schools and Boston exam schools. I've been looking at exam schools of late. And exam schools make me laugh because essentially they're factories for bragging about not breaking students. Right? That's, that's essentially what they're hanging their hats on. We've admitted high test takers and they've graduated as good as test takers. Let's rank ourselves based on their test scores. It's like, so you, you've selected by the same means that you've measured, and then you're saying you've done a good job at not hurting that skill that you knew they had walking in. Um, so it's a very, very strange thing. And the rankings buying into this and ranking because of that is a very, very bizarre phenomenon that we've bought into. When ranking season inevitably arrives, Akil is often put in mind of one of his favorite quotes from Albert Binet, who referred to IQ measurements as, quote, brutal pessimism. That's because the rankings give the appearance of certainty that's based on, well, here, I'll let Akil explain it. Testing and rankings and all these numerical measures we attempt to use that aren't what they purport to be. There isn't the fine grain distinctions that calling someone school one versus school seven actually suggests to the public. And it happens all throughout education in this country. Just the notion of these things as objective measures is problematic, right? They are the personal opinion of particular people justified with numbers and formulas. Well, it isn't just that the the fine distinction, the fine sorts of statistical distinctions between school one and school seven are taken seriously despite the fact that they shouldn't be. It's it's even worse than that, right? That there is somehow a distinction between school one and school 70 or school 70 and school 700. Uh, that if you're talking about a system in which the schools are legitimate, um, there actually should be very small differences in terms of what they're actually doing for students, right? If you're talking about, and I'm not saying that we have a you know fully funded, um, you know open uh, integrated system either at the K-12 level or in higher ed, um, but we can think through that as a sort of theoretical baseline and say, gosh, in such a system. It would really be a kind of meaningless exercise to rank schools, and I'm no expert in Canada, uh, but some of my friends from uh, the Great North have talked about Canada as being a case where actually rankings of schools would be a nonsensical exercise because the schools in higher ed are really designed to be more or less 
equal with each other, um, that you shouldn't have to travel too far to go to a highly reputable Canadian university. And I think this is a useful starting point for talking about rankings um, and for sort of upending this assumption that there are great schools, there are good schools, there are mediocre schools, and there are bad schools, and that you know there is every gradient in between there. Looking back historically, and that's one of the things that really fascinates me about listening to the podcast is just the history of all of this. The rankings, especially in higher ed right now, is a, is a ranking of historical privilege. The Ivy League started with admitting kids of the aristocracy, et cetera, essentially. The first U.S. News ranking was entirely reputational. Schools that are ranked in the top 50 or whatever essentially don't change. They move a little bit, but they don't change. So they started out by saying which institutions have the most privilege, the most reputation, and they asked college presidents. And that was the sole measure of the quality of the institution. What the person in a position of power who probably got there through his privilege and connection had to say about his peers. One of the things that you were just talking about, Akil, is I think really important and not obvious to people. And it has to do with you know testing the validity of your measurement tools. So if what you start with is a reputational ranking, and then you say, well, we want to include some other kinds of measures in our algorithm here. You want to know that those measures are valid and reliable and that they can be used uh, from year to year. And uh, one way to test the validity then is to look at well, how do the rankings compare when we add in this component to the methodology? It's an exercise that is essentially designed to not challenge whatever the original purportedly valid measure is, right? So if the original valid measure is this reputational ranking, and then you're including other measures and using that original reputational ranking as your baseline measure of validity against which you will compare everything, right? You will only include measures that don't really disrupt uh, that original reputational-based ranking. And so we can see here, as you know, many have observed, that the best way to improve your ranking, the best way to rank highly on these is to be founded sometime in the 18th century. A little difficult for some schools, uh, but we can see that schools like Harvard took that uh, to mind and founded themselves in the 17th century, and they've gone ahead and taken care of staying in the top 10 forever as a result of that. One observation that I make from time to time in talking about rankings in higher ed is that they are an essential component of a privilege laundering machine, right? So if what you want is to launder your privilege, uh, and uh, the basic idea here is that you know you don't want to say, well, I have in inherited my status, um, that explains my current social and economic standing, but rather to say this is the product of hard work and natural ability. The first thing that you need is a kind of ideology of merit, right? A, a belief in a meritocracy. And we certainly have that in this country. But then you're also going to need some way of signaling your distinction. Now, we use grades and test scores for 
the individual component there, but you also want to be able to say, I went to the best school. And we can see that this plays out in really powerful ways when people will use language to describe somebody's intelligence by simply referring to the school that they went to, right? He's really smart, he went to Yale. Oh, she went to a bad school, right? How smart could she really be? One of the, I was listening to, thinking about this as Jack was talking about how these rankings end up entrenching privilege. And then another way that they've really ended up doing that is that as all of these schools furiously compete to move up the rankings, they are looking for students who can bring those scores with them. And so, for example, in Massachusetts, as the state has retreated from its commitment to funding public higher ed, the percentage of students from other states is increasing, right? Like schools are looking for students who can pay their own way or pay the more expensive freight from being from out of state. And so it's just a a perfect example of the kind of perverse feedback loop that these ranking systems create. Yeah, it's a huge issue because, and that's, I guess, the less evil part of the whole thing. (laughs) And as, as scary as that is, that's actually the less evil part of it, right? You understand there's a financial reality to running an institution. Admitting students who can pay a higher way is a financial reality of some institutions, especially as states stop funding public higher ed. Then there's the intentional machinations that are part of that There was a really good write-up on, I believe it's University of Florida, in the Chronicle of Higher Ed on their 10-year mission to creep up the rankings and get into the top 10 or something like that, or top 20, whatever it was. But there was a very specific intentionality to playing statistical games, increasing these class sizes, decreasing those class sizes so that the average works out so that they will creep up in the rankings. And that has real consequences. And I found that beyond the impact to the public, there's a real financial implication. Moody's, which rates, which gives the credit rating for institutions, uses rankings. I believe they use Barron's. And Barron's rankings, as far as I can tell, their entire methodology is test scores, selectivity, and GPA, which is in and of itself sort of cyclical because selectivity is in a lot of ways driven by looking at higher GPA and test scores. Akil's reference to how credit ratings can affect school rankings intrigued me. I wanted to know more. From my understanding, the better the bond rating for a particular institution, the better the credit rating. Therefore, the same thing as credit rating for us. We can we can get more loans. Therefore, we can fund more things, et cetera, et cetera. Our reputation increases. Potentially, we attract more students. So again, it's this whole strange cycle of reaping the benefits of privilege. It's really strange to think that the credit worthiness of an institution is not driven by, I don't know, how much money they have in the bank, whether they're in a state that funds higher ed really well, but is in some way driven by their SAT scores. 
one of the things that we've seen over the past, oh, you know, it's been really about 20 years, but not really until the last 10 years that we have seen the rankings trickle down from higher ed to uh, the secondary level. And we can now see online, niche.com or greatschools.org, you know, your local newspaper, your regional city magazine, right? So in our area, it would be Boston Magazine, all have rankings of high schools. And I'm wondering, to what extent are they simply reproducing what is done in higher education at a lower level? And what are they doing differently here? And, you know, is anything better? Is anything worse? I think it is more blatantly tied to test scores rather than directly tied to wealth indicators as higher ed rankings seem to be. Because my work has been around test scores so much, I think that's why my default is it's worse. But I don't really know. I guess it depends on your position on those things. But the niche ranking, if you look at that, 60% of their ranking is what they call academics grade. (laughs) And academics means state assessment test, SAT scores, and a survey on academics. (laughs) So, So like, I'm not sure what that means, right? And then there's more fun. 10% is from the teacher grade. But as part of the teacher grade, state test results. <laughs> so, so we've got test results counted in all different portions of this ranking multiple times. I will join you on the, the more dangerous side of the scale here. And I've got two additional reasons. One is that people generally aren't picking up their households and moving in response to U.S. News and World Report rankings of colleges and universities. You continue to live where you live and you ship your kid off to school. As opposed to some of these other ratings and rankings, people will literally move in response to them. And so, you know, if we're thinking about the way that, let's say, greatschools.org has its scores tied into real estate websites like Zillow and Trulia, you can see a kind of natural path for somebody who's shopping for a home, wherein they would use the greatschools.org scores that are built into that real estate website. I think Redfin builds them into. And you would sort and filter by their greatschools.org scores and literally choose where you live. Now, if what we see is that the ratings correlate with race or family income, there's going to be a segregatory impact there. You know, if affluent folks are choosing schools, which they may not know it, right? They may think it's a rating of actual school quality, but which are really schools attended by affluent kids. You are driving segregation by building these ratings into these real estate systems. And then the other piece that I would include here is that there is so much autonomy in higher education uh, in terms of the way that instructors design and teach their classes that I think it's very hard to imagine a world in which pedagogy in higher education is affected by U.S. News and World Reports rankings or Princeton Reviews or you know whoever's. As opposed to at the K-12 level, it is easy to imagine this happening because we know it already does happen. The fact that state standardized test scores are the chief basis for accountability determinations means that we already see 
schools and educators responding by trying to game those scores and adding more stakes to those. And for many school and district leaders, actually, it's these other more accessible ratings and rankings that create more fire under their feet. Uh, because they get more calls from parents who have looked at the local greatschools.org rating than who have gone onto the state database to sort of muck through that and figure out what the accountability determination was, that you're just exacerbating a problematic consequence that we've already seen. You've sold me. I am <laughs> now fully team K-12. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reliance on test scores as a outweighted indicator is hugely problematic. And, and it wouldn't be as problematic if they was used for good, right? But no one's ever looked at a test score and said, oh, we need to give those people more money, <laughs> right? Like, which, which I, would, I would be on board if, with all the testing forever if it meant find the lowest performers and shower them with money. But that's not the way we've been using it. So in every instance, test scores are used to segregate, to penalize, to stigmatize around really narrow measures and to create these rankings that purport to speak to intelligence, ability, aptitude, all these other things that it just doesn't. And, and that's, you know, that's the huge failing of American policy. Okay, so if you've been listening along like I have, maybe you're feeling a little downhearted at this point. School rankings are so much a part of our great meritocratic conveyor belt. Can it really be stopped or even slowed down? I think one of the pieces to underscore here is the neoliberal theory of change uh, that you know consumers and individuals responding to information and acting in a market will produce better results than democratic politics will. Uh, and we can see here that this system in which individuals are viewing themselves as consumers in a free market and who are competing against each other to try to get their kids an education, using this imperfect information, often as the basis or sole basis for their decisions, is far more problematic than if we all got together and jointly made decisions about how schools should be run, funded, you know, how uh, student ass assignment should work, that neoliberalism in general um, and the degree to which it has shaped American life is a core problem uh, in addition to the rankings, right? That we can envision a society in which the rankings exist um, and don't have the same kinds of consequences that they have here. And that's, I think that's, that's so core to American life, right? Is, is this the notion of individualism and capitalism and competition, but we found the worst elements of all of it. I think that's what's sort of happened. You know, the commodification of education, right? Testing doesn't actually have to be terrible. Rankings don't have to be terrible, but the way that we're doing it is terrible, right? It, you know, you don't have to pretend that you can rank 13,000 high schools, U.S. News and World Report, and give them a score to the thousandth decimal place, there is no world in which you could possibly have that level of detail and accuracy on 13,000 schools and pretend that that's meaningful 
and create an environment where somebody's trying to jump from school, you know, 152 to 154, because it's going to be a better experience and better outcomes. And so I think that everything that we're doing with rankings and and the use of testing, which is, again, problematic in its design, implementation, usage, comes back to money, right? U.S. News was sort of the, the big impetus for a lot of the problems created by rankings and, and perpetuated a lot of the other rankings that followed, right? There were rankings going back to 1910, right? But those rankings were academics comparing often graduate programs and, and trying to give insight into who was in that institution. U.S. News commodified it. They're like, we're going to sell magazines. We're going to put a nice, easy, brutally pessimistic number in front of people so they go, ooh, I want nine, not 10. And that ruined so much of the evaluatory benefits of any rankings. So is there anything we can feel hopeful about? My hope is the conversation around equity and diversity and diversification of thought will eventually lead to change. That's, that's the greatest hope I have is that as employers change, as organizations shift their C-suite, and you no longer have employers recruiting according to rankings. You no longer have you know, hiring managers believing that degree X is somehow more valuable, that a physics degree from Harvard is worth more than a physics degree from Hampton, right? I think like once those things stop, right, I think that will start to shift it because I think that's what a lot of this is about. It's a lot of gameplay in hope that the end result is access to the hallowed halls that provide access to wealth, you know, through employment. And I think once those things shift, and I think part of that will be hiring, part of that will be uh, the sort of gig economy that's coming in and the programming and, and tech places where you can have a little bit more success as an individual working on your own without the need for a Wall Street bank to, to co-sign that, yes, you are on the lacrosse team at Stanvard and therefore, Stanvard. you know, you're hireable. I completely agree and think that Akil's approach here to think about, you know, what are the top-down drivers is a really smart one, though I will also note that there is a body of sociological literature that tells us that when some employers are selecting Ivy League squash players, that it's not because they believe that athletes, you know, work harder and that uh, Ivy League graduates are smarter. It's because they are actually selecting a very particular kind of person and it's quicker to use that as a proxy than it is to ask people to come in and spend a full day in an interview to figure out, you know, are you white shoe law firm material, aka, you know, are you like us? So I have some skepticism there, although your point, Akil, about diversifying, you know, the workplace and particularly the C-suite, I think is a really essential uh, note that you make. I'll say that I see some potential hope in changing the bottom-up aspect of the uses of rankings and ratings. Because I think when people are educated about what the rankings actually measure, they instantly uh, become deflated in their eyes a bit, these ratings. Um, moreover, I think that when you talk through with people what is actually the same across schools, either at the K-12 level or in higher ed, they again will begin to see 
you know what, actually there, there probably aren't real felt differences that are as large as the, you know, purported statistical differences here. So at the K-12 level, you know, within a state, for instance, uh, teacher licensure requirements, teacher training programs, state curricular standards documents, state curricular uh, standards aligned testing, you know, uh, state funding formulas, these often promote a very high degree of sameness. And it's something we often complain about. But there's actually something of a strength there to say, you know, actually, the differences from place to place are not actually going to be as severe as you might imagine. And in higher education, I think that one thing that has been a comfort to people has been the fact that the complete collapse of the job market in higher ed means that no matter what college or university you attend, you have like the rock star recent graduates of PhD programs there because, you know, you could be the most impressive recently minted PhD. Um, and just simply the odds of getting a tenure track job anywhere are pretty slim. Uh, so, you know, the low rated schools, high rated schools, they all have pretty incredible uh, professors, at least in terms of their research training. Who knows if they can teach? Since we started out talking about higher education rankings, I couldn't let the episode end without asking Akil about that mythological creature blamed in every story about rising college costs, the lazy river. Has he seen one? Has he floated down one? I have not been in a lazy river on a college campus. I firmly believe that this is a myth of excess in higher ed. I, I think that there's one in the South somewhere at a camp with a school with a huge football team that I probably would never go to. So, but I've never seen one. That was Akil Bello. He's the Senior Director of Advocacy and Advancement at Fair Test, among other things. He tweets incisively about all things ranking-related at Akil Bello. That's A-K-I-L-B-E-L-L-O. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss how to end the rankings rat race and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. What would it look like if we were to design a school system from the ground up? If that intrigues you, just head on over to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast and become a monthly supporter. So, Jack, I sort of laid out my particular bleak vision based in part on my experience with the students that I teach. And based also on your generally bleak outlook, yes. <laughs> I'm very sunny. Everyone knows that. But you you want to push back a little bit. You actually think that my view on this is is too bleak and that we could potentially slow down, if not stop, the conveyor belt if we just got people... To recognize it. Yeah, I think as with so many things, uh, as with so much uh, of our culture, um, it's invisible to us because it's the water in which we swim. But as soon as we begin identifying it, as soon as we begin talking about it in a kind of concrete and clear way, um, as soon as we recognize, um, you know, I'm going to paraphrase David Foster Wallace, right? That this is water. This is water. 
this is water, right? Um, I think that that begins to change the way we see the world. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I do is ask people why they have the name of their college or university on the back of their car. Um, like, why? I'm just curious. And I, and I try not to do it in a hectoring way. Um, but it, that is a completely bizarre practice that we don't think about because so many people do it, right? Um, or I have just started asking people when they will say, you know, so-and-so is really smart, he or she went to a really good school. I'll say, how do you know that that's a good school? I'm so curious. Did you go there? Uh, what, what was your experience like? Who was your favorite professor? Um, that beginning to talk about these sorts of things, uh, whether it's at the college level or at the K-12 level, right, where people will share their beliefs about the quality of a school system that they have never set foot in, um, that if we can begin asking questions, very direct questions, you know, how do you know this? What's the source of your information? Why are you saying that? Um, that suddenly it puts us all in a position where we need to turn our brains on and start thinking a little bit. And I think that's the key because as soon as we start thinking about these ratings and rankings, most of them are, you know, pretty outlandishly bad in terms of the, the data that goes into them. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty harmful in terms of the consequences. Um, I think Americans are generally pretty smart. I think that it's just that we have so many inducements to not think, um, you know, and it's not particular to us in this country, um, but we have, you know, so many pressures on us to turn our brains off, um, whether it's to operate as consumers or just the pressures of culture to do that. So the more we can get each other to turn our brains on, the more hope I have. Well, that's kind of the motto for this show as well. I'm always reminding you to turn your brain back on. <laughs> so I love the idea that you're now this sort of one-man crusader uh, to free us from the tyranny of merit. But Are you going to make curious, me a little cape? I'm curious about what kind of response you get from people when you ask them questions like, why do they have that sticker on their car? And do they ask in turn, like, why do you have your Stanvard sticker on your Prius? Yeah, I, I, I don't for precisely that reason because uh, I realized at some point, you know, I had Haverford College, you know, where I graduated as an undergrad, um, stuck on the back of one of my cars. And then one day realized that that was really weird. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that so many people will experience is embarrassment uh, because it's a, it, you should be embarrassed. It's a really weird thing to do and it's mostly bragging and the thing you're bragging about actually may say nothing about you. Um, you know, like we have no idea what you learned at your high status college or university other than that if you paid tuition, you've got a lot more money than I do. Um, so I think, you know, that's one reaction. Another reaction is just sort of befuddlement. Like, why are you asking this question? Um, but uh, I think eventually what you get to is a kind of realization that, um, you know, I think is most common uh, for Wiley Coyote, right? To to look down and realize there's nothing underneath you. Well, Jack, I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to Akil today. The for me, one of the highlights of this strange and dreary time has been that I've, I'm getting to know a number of people who I only encountered on Twitter, and then you know whether it's interviewing them or just corresponding, it's actually making this time 
feel much better. Yeah, I got asked to virtual coffee like nine months ago uh, by somebody and thought, that's that's weird. I don't want to do that, but uh, it actually has been one of the kind of saving graces uh, of this pandemic is... Um, Meeting up with people who you would never meet up with in the real world because they're too far away, or um, you know, it's you're not friends enough to like merit meeting each other in person. That's a little weird, uh, but you know, the stakes are pretty low, and the investment is pretty low to just uh, jump on Zoom with somebody and chat for a little while. Well, speaking of very exciting online lives, you and I have been running our really pretty exciting virtual book tour. We've been talking to all kinds of groups, and we just did an event that I thought was really great um, through the Shanker Institute. And we asked a conservative commentator named Andy Smerick to read the book and then you know ask us questions, sorts of questions that we might not get other places. And it was actually really interesting. You can see it for yourself if you go to their website. That's shankerinstitute.org. And Jack, I thought that one of the questions that Andy asked us that didn't come up during the event would be a great topic for our Patreon in the Weed segment. And that is, how would you or I design a school system from scratch? What would it actually look like? And I, I thought a lot about that in the days leading up to the event and then the fact that we didn't get to discuss it. I feel like I have a lot of leftover insights and that the weeds <laughs> are the perfect place to trot them out. What do you think? Left, leftover something. Uh, insights may be the wrong word for either of us on this. But um, yeah, I think this is a good topic. Andy, during his comments about our book, mentioned that we spend so much time talking about what we don't like in terms of uh, reforms to unmake public education that we really don't have a lot of time to talk about what we do like. And I think you know, you and I both are not conservative in the sense that you know, we are not trying to defend the existing public education system from any change whatsoever. Uh, I think we're both pretty invested in preserving the values of that system, but recognize you know, deep flaws and shortcomings in the system that you know, we think as long as you preserve the system can be improved, but that we shouldn't pull the entire thing apart. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about what, what would we do, particularly if we had a blank slate. If this topic appeals to you, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of the various extras you can get just by supporting us to the tune of a couple dollars each month. And we're running a very exciting special right now. Jack's lighting up knowing what I'm going to say. If you <laughs> sign up at the $10 a month rate, we will send you a free copy of our new book, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Jack, doesn't that sound exciting? It does. I keep waiting for you to pitch something new, like a homemade candle or something. No, no, no it's, this it's is very, people book. really are they're enjoying this. You should see how many times a week I go to the post office. <laughs> well, you could still go to the post office to send candles. For those of you who want to keep your coins in your change purses, uh, there are lots of ways to support the show. Uh, my favorite, as regular listeners know, is when you share the latest episode or your favorite episode with friends, colleagues, or uh, strangers if you want to. Um, we love when you interact with the show's Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. We've gotten some great ideas about shows from you there, and it's just nice to get feedback. And then it helps when you go on and give us a rating. The more stars, the better. And I think that's about it. That's my spiel. 
And just make sure you don't have any change in your pockets if you use the privileged laundromat. <laughs> That's right. It could crack the tempered glass. I knew that Jack Schneider is pretty much the only person in the world who would think that that was funny. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. <laughs> I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Thank you.